Please remain standing for the reading of the word. I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke's Gospel, the seventh chapter, as we read this marvelous story of this woman taken, the sinful woman who met the Savior. In fact, I was looking at the words of Speak, O Lord, the second verse, and I thought about her. I thought about this sinful woman that we're going to read about right now. Teach us, Lord, full obedience, holy reverence, true humility. Test our thoughts and our attitudes in the radiance of your purity. Cause our faith to rise, cause our eyes to see your majesty and your authority. Words of power that can never fail. Let their truth prevail over unbelief. Now as I read this, see if this woman doesn't characterize that verse. Hebrew, or Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner." And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. For he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go. In peace. May God bless this reading of His Word. Let us pray together. Oh, Father, what an example of what it means to know You, to be forgiven. And Lord, I pray that as we consider this passage now before us, that 
you by your spirit, the only one who can do anything in our lives, move our hearts, bring us to faith, confirm that faith. May he be alive and may he do that in each of our hearts. Seal your truth to our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I want to take just a moment to thank you all for the opportunity that I've had that you've given me. Really, your elders have given me to speak uh, these two weeks to preach. I count it a privilege to do that, and uh, I'm thankful to Ted and Donna who have hosted us this week, and to Ann Murray, wherever you are, Ann, uh, for opening her cabana for us. We've been in Ann's cabana all week, and I'll tell you what a, what a treat that is over on the beach and uh, the times we've, we've had spent together with her. So we are very thankful. And for those of you, too, that uh, took us to dinner or whatever we did together, host, hosted us, we're, we're very thankful. Um, Mike Malone and, 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 my, and his wife and, and Judy and I... Um, Got to know each other over, I was just thinking, over 30 years ago, uh, 84, I think, or maybe 83, I don't remember which, but we were in the assessment, the PCA Assessment Center together as we looked toward doing whatever God had for us to do, and of course, Mike went one way and we went another, and we hadn't seen each other until about two years ago, I think, we came and uh, were reacquainted and uh, met each other here. But uh, we thank God for his ministry and the way God has led him. We've watched him over the years through the PCA communications, but uh, hadn't seen each other in all those years. But uh, we thank God for leading he and his wife to, uh, to Memphis to continue ministry there. Well, today, as your bulletin says, today is the day that we observe as Palm Sunday, the day that begins what many call Holy Week. The day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, in effect announcing that he was indeed the king of Israel. Mark, in his gospel, says the crowds announced, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. The people were shouting phrases from Psalm 118, the psalm that we read this morning. Hosanna is a transliteration of the Hebrew meaning, save us, save us, Hosanna has come. And they recognized it that Palm Sunday. Jesus came indeed to save us, not in the physical sense, but in the spiritual sense. He came to save us from our sin. To save us from that which would ultimately destroy us. Perhaps there's no greater illustration of of this than the passage we have before us today. If you look back at verse 34, Jesus has already been identified as a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Here he demonstrates it, really, on two sides. The, 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 the obvious sinner is the woman, the woman who comes in and does what we read she did. But you know, Simon the Pharisee is even worse. Worse than a prostitute? Yes. Because the worst sinner of all is the one who thinks he's not a sinner. And he doesn't need Hosanna. He doesn't need salvation. The one who can merit God's goodness by his acts of 
kindness or whatever it might be, who doesn't need Christ to die for him, I'll do it myself. I'll get to heaven on my own. After a cursory reading, uh, several things are somewhat curious in this story. Maybe you picked them out. Number one, why would a Pharisee invite Jesus to dinner in the first place? We can only speculate as to why he did it. Perhaps he was trying to find something that he could nail him with. Um, This was toward the end of Jesus' ministry, and uh, emotions were building, and and they were looking for a way to uh, accuse Jesus, to put him to death. But this was up in Galilee. This, this was not down in Judea. This wasn't in the Jerusalem area. This, this was far away where tensions were much less. So that probably wasn't it. Or maybe this particular Pharisee was somehow drawn to Jesus and really wanted to learn more, to hear more of his teaching. Kind of like Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He wanted to hear more. What do you have to say? We don't know the answer. In terms of the way the scene is configured, notice in verse 36, he took place at the table, took a place at the table. The NIV, I think, translates it a little better. He reclined at table. Later on it says that. He reclined at table. They didn't sit in chairs like we do at a table that's three feet off the ground or whatever. They would lie on their sides. The, the, table, the tables were low to the ground and they would lie on their sides and eat that way with their feet sticking out uh, from the table. And unlike our homes where if you're not invited you stay away, in these times uh, the local people were allowed in. And the the local people would come and, as, and if we were sitting at tables here they would be standing around the perimeter so that they could listen in on the conversation, but they wouldn't have the, the privilege of eating the meal. And this is, this is the way it's configured here. This is the way it's set up. Um, the poorer people might, too, benefit uh, from any leftovers. If they had some leftovers, then uh, if you were not, uh, didn't have much, you could uh, maybe eat some of the food after the dinner was over. So they tagged along with the others. Whatever the occasion, people came and they, they heard what Jesus had to say. Well, enter, enter the sinful woman, verse 37. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner... When she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought in an alabaster flask of ointment. Well, since it was common for uninvited people to come in, someone who was poor might just have as much opportunity as anyone else. But this sinful woman, this this is another story. There's little doubt she was a prostitute, and everybody knew her. By the way, we can be fairly certain it was not Mary Magdalene. Luke introduces her in the next chapter. If you look at chapter 8, verse 2, so if it were her and Luke names her there, he would have no doubt named her here. So I don't think it was Mary Magdalene, as many attribute her uh, to being a prostitute. There's no indication of that. The literal translation of verse 37 is, And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. Luke often uses the term sinner in his accounts. And in other places it meant a pagan or Gentile. 
But Luke himself was a Gentile, so he wasn't referring to a sinner in that, in that sense, but rather one who lived a sinful life. This woman lived a sinful life. This woman was nobody you wanted to have around. This, this woman was not invited with all the others around the perimeter of the room to benefit from any conversation she might hear. It also indicates a person who is disparaged, sinner does, looked down on. This woman was, was nobody that you wanted anywhere. But she knows she has access to Jesus at this house, which she would not have, by the way, at the synagogue. She wouldn't be allowed in the synagogue. She wouldn't even want to go into the synagogue. So she brings along this alabaster jar of perfume. Perfume would have been part and parcel of her trade as a prostitute. And this is no cheap Dollar General knockoff perfume. This this is the real stuff, the real stuff, expensive perfume. In the ancient world, perfume was valued even more than it is today, and the alabaster jar was no small thing either. Uh, Alabaster was quarried in Egypt back in the first century, a, a kind of a, a, ver- a very valued object, kind of like a marble-like uh, material that uh, ver- was very desired, also very common in, in the first century. Well, this sinful woman apparently did quite well in her trade to be able to use expensive perfume this way, pour it on somebody's feet rather than just use it on herself. So she comes into the house, verse 38, and standing behind him at his feet, Weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. My thinking is she probably would have rather poured it on his head, which was customary, but the, but the way they're configured with his head up here at the table and the feet of everybody around, she didn't have access to his head. She, she couldn't do it. And so she was left with his feet. You can also see her in the, in the dim light, hoping nobody would notice her, because they all knew her, and then throw her out, waiting for an opportunity to do what she came to do. And as she waits, she begins weeping, overcome with emotion, In the presence of holiness, she realizes what a wretch she is. And she wells up with emotion. And like a dam bursting, her eyes overflow with tears. And as she weeps, she begins wetting his feet with her tears. And because the host hasn't done what any good host is supposed to do, bring water and and wash the feet of his guests, she does it. She does it. And then uses her own hair to wipe them as her tears bathe his feet with water. The word translated wet in verse 38 is breco, which can be translated rain. She rained tears on his feet. And then she began pouring perfume on them. If I can't get to his head, she thinks, his feet will have to do. 
I'll just bathe his feet with my perfume. Anyway, I, if I did have access to his head, there's no way I, the wretched sinner that I am, could even look into his face. And Luke says, she wiped them with her hair and kissed his feet. You know what that means? That means she took her hair down. A Jewish woman doesn't take her hair down in public. She she took her hair down, a shameful thing. But the host wasn't forthcoming with a towel. She had nothing else. So she took her hair down and wiped his feet with her hair. To say this is not a breach of propriety is an understatement. Can you imagine being Jesus at this moment? Everybody knowing who she is and what's going on. This loose woman who everybody knows is doing this to me. Jesus might think, how will this look? Obviously, we have some kind of a relationship. Look at verse 39. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. For she is a sinner. You know what's significant to me there? Simon Simon doesn't, it, it doesn't even enter his mind that Jesus and this woman had any kind of a relationship. That wasn't his thought at all. Why not? It wasn't anybody's thought ever. It, was, it never entered into any, any story whatsoever because everyone knew the purity of the Lord Jesus Christ. He lived such a pure life there was never any question. What Simon was upset about was not that Jesus was involved with her, but that Jesus didn't know who she was. Jesus should have jumped up instantly and denounced her for the sinner she is. But he didn't. And therefore what? In Simon's mind, he's no prophet. He's no prophet. Simon was really disgusted by two things. By what the woman did and by what Jesus did not do. So what happens next? Jesus addresses Simon He doesn't address the woman first. He addresses Simon. And you have this in verses 40 and following. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. When they couldn't pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. And then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she hasn't ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. For, but he who is forgiven little loves little. What's Jesus' point? 
Love and forgiveness. Love and forgiveness go together. Notice Jesus says to Simon in verse 44, do you see this woman? Well, of course I see her. She's right here. Although although by this time she's probably cowering in some corner someplace because she's been called out. Lying in her tears. Simon, this woman loved much and as a result she's forgiven much. When I came into your house you didn't even... Provide water for my feet, much less give me a kiss or pour perfume on my head. But this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped washing, kissing, pouring perfume on my feet, no less. On my feet. Therefore what? Verse 47. Therefore I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. What's Jesus saying to Simon? He's telling him, you don't love me. You don't love me. And as a result, you will not be forgiven. That is a, that is a powerful statement. Did you hear it? You don't love me, Simon. I don't see anything in you that reflects that you know me, that you've been forgiven. You know, we see this in the church today. The second, third, fourth generation Christian, Christian quote, who, who's heard it all their life, you know. Oh, there goes mom getting religious again. Oh, granddad's gone to church. Where else do you think he is? But then there's the person who's lived a dissolute, Christless life, who comes to faith and is so overjoyed that finally, finally I've come to my senses. Finally I recognize that the one who, who came to die, came to die for me and to forgive me of my sin. This woman is what it looks like to come to saving faith. So overwhelmed that she literally weeps in the presence of the one who has cleansed her, who has forgiven her wretched sinfulness. Many of you know all about this because it's happened to you. The question is, has it happened to you? Have you ever fallen, as it were, on your face before the one who gave his life to redeem you from sin, to cleanse your wretchedness? Verse 50, your faith has saved you. Well, he says to her first, verse 48, not to Simon, your sins are forgiven. Convicted of her sin, she came to Christ in saving faith, and it demonstrated itself. It showed. You could see it by what she did. Simon, do you see this? This is what it really means to know me. This is the object lesson that you need to grasp this morning, Simon. Your faith has saved you. By the way, it's always faith that saves. It's always faith that saves. A faith that demonstrates itself. A faith that is visible. A faith that acts. The book of James. A faith that demonstrates itself through acts of kindness. The the acts don't save us, but the faith is always demonstrated. 
And don't miss the last thing he says to her in verse 50 there. I love this. Go in peace. Go in peace. I love that. I love that. Go in peace. Literally, literally from the Greek, it's go into God's peace. Go into God's shalom and dwell there in peace forever. Remember what he told the woman taken in adultery in John chapter 8? Go and sin no more. Here he says, go in peace. Go into God's shalom and live there for the rest of your life. He said the same thing to her, basically. Don't do what you've been doing, but rather live in the light of the peace that you found in Jesus Christ. In me, Jesus said. Now let me ask you, have you entered into that peace? Do you today live in that peace that only Christ can give? Do you possess it? I love John 14, 27. If you've never memorized it, you're not too old to memorize it. Peace I leave with you, Jesus said. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world gives do I give unto you. Judy and I walked walked the boardwalk this morning and there were a lot of people out there. And it was beautiful. And maybe they were doing what we were doing, just getting ready for church. I hope so. But I couldn't help but think, I wonder how many of them who are enjoying the beautiful creation of the the marvelous God that we worship and serve, even know that. Even know that. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Dwell in God's peace. This Palm Sunday, as we reflect back on that first Palm Sunday, it's hard to forget what they did. You know, they they lauded Him. Today, Palm Sunday, they worshipped Him. Hosanna in the highest. The King of Israel has come. But by Friday, what? Crucify Him. Crucify Him. We won't worship. We don't accept. We've not entered the peace that He has given, crucify Him. And praise God, Sunday morning He rose from the dead. This sinful woman truly met the Savior, came to know, to love, to serve the One who gave His life for her. May God speak to your heart, having heard this marvelous story and seen the the work of regeneration in the life of one who was no more, we would think, no more suited for regeneration than anybody in the world. Yet Christ, by His power, regenerated her to life, to peace in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together.